Welcome to The Breakdown with Brock Corbin Becky, a weekly podcast that breaks down politics, policy, and current affairs. I'm Michael Broadcorp. And I'm Becky Scher. Throughout our time doing this podcast, we've aimed to speak to a variety of people with a variety of backgrounds, and today's certainly highlights that. We're coming to you with another bonus episode featuring our guest, Will Marshall. Will is the president and founder of the Progressive Policy Institute. The PPI serves to connect ideas and political action and maintains a close relationship with the Democrats in Congress, as well as leading governors and a host of dynamic mayors and metro leaders. Today, we're going to break down two recent op-eds Will authored in The Hill. First, why working families aren't sold on Biden economics and Democrats need a post-populist economics and get into this and the Institute's stance when it comes to tech issues and policy. We'll break down the dynamics of the 2024 cycle and Will's take on what a winning message looks like for working families. Thanks for joining us for the second time this week. And we hope you enjoy the show. We're excited today to be joined by Will Marshall, who's the president and founder of the Progressive Policy Institute. Will, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Michael. Tell our listeners a bit about what the Progressive Policy Institute is. Uh, PBI is a think tank that's been around for about uh, just over 30 years. Uh, we uh, earned our spurs working with Bill Clinton back in the day to help him uh, change the direction of the Democratic Party with, uh, under the so-called New Democrats. And, uh, you know, and uh, after that, uh, we had a lot of success in the 90s after after that. And, and, you know, we had some rougher patches, but we're still at it, plugging away and trying to uh, help, you know, Democrats uh, uh, build bigger majorities and uh, around a kind of radically pragmatic approach to governing. What's the importance of being uh, r- radically pragmatic in this in this political environment? Well, in this environment, uh, everybody, as we know, is they're, they're very polarized, and both parties have really moved to their ex- extremes. In fact, there's a new poll out I was just looking at that said most Americans believe both parties have moved too far to uh, the right and left, respectively, um, and so uh, you know. What we're saying is that's a great formula if you want to be a 48% party. You don't want to have a durable governing majority. Uh, you want to oscillate in and out of power every two years. It's sort of the, the recent pattern. I think we, you know, one party grabs the House or the Senate, vice versa. The, the White House has changed hands uh, repeatedly, too. And uh, so, you know, our argument is that we need a realignment in politics, which means the kind of poli- policies that could uh, really command majority uh, assent around the country. And if you look at the map, you guys know this, but <laughs> Democrats aren't competitive in very uh, broad swaths of America, rural areas, the middle of the country, uh, anywhere outside the big metros. And we think that's a problem. Well, there's, there's some other folks in the party that don't, but we do. And so we want to change that and make the party competitive where it isn't. So here in Minnesota, we um, we that is certainly is is the case, right? We have Republicans um, tend to represent the rural Greater Minnesota. Democrats um, have a, a stronghold on the Twin Cities metro suburban areas. Um, now we might have fundamental disagreements of, of of that sort of thing, but explain a little bit of what either you've done in the past or, or what you believe your appeal is to working Minnesotans, rural Minnesotans, or, or Americans, right? Uh, I'm sorry, yeah. not just Minnesotans, but in general. Well, let me now let me try to answer that question, Becky, by 
offered a little bit of context about the changes that have uh, happened in the Democratic Party uh, since 2000, uh, you know, basically in this century. Uh, the party's moved pretty far to the left in, in a lot of respects. That's mostly because of young voters. We've just had a young, you know, the uh, millennials and the Z, Generation Zers after them have just grown up in, uh, in, a, in a much more left-leaning political world. And they've moved the party substantially to the left. Uh, our problem as a party is that the country as a whole has not moved to the left. And so there's a disconnection there that we're trying to deal with. I'd say it has a couple of key elements. One is on the economy. Uh, we believe that uh, the Democrats need to offer a hopeful vision of America's economic future, uh, one that understands that none of us are going to do well if our private economy is not doing well, if it's not dynamic, if it's not competitive, if it's not innovating rapidly. And so we've heard, particularly on the left wing of our party, a lot of, I don't know, just I'll be blunt about it, a lot of business bashing, you know, sort of. Uh, how terrible the private sector is. We think that's a mistake. There's some bad actors out there, and when they break bad, they ought to be punished. But in general, what we need is a partnership between a smart government and a private sector for prosperity, one that's going to create a lot of good jobs, uh, it's going to lift wages, going to protect workers, uh, and create a whole lot of new pathways to upward mobility. That's what we're about, and we're very much focused on this competition with China. You know, uh, we've got to win the battle for technological and economic leadership in this century. We're not going to do that. It's, it's all the, the public sector, the private sector are at, at source points. You know, we, we need to work together. So that's a you know a distinguishing characteristic of our brand of radically pragmatic Democrats. A second one has to do with cultural issues. You know, I don't have to tell you all that it's uh, become very hot in American politics the culture wars that seem to seep into everything now. And, um, you know, frankly, Democrat, I think both parties have problems on this, on these issues. But the Democrats' problem is that, uh, you know, on issues like immigration, on crime, on education, on race and gender kind of issues, uh, uh, some of the parties' positions seem to be pretty far uh, from uh, the uh, sort of the median voter in the country. And so we, gotta, we have to practice cultural moderation um, kind of an embrace, an embrace of uh, mainstream values. I think we're going to get a wider audience. You know, in the kind of places you're talking about, the kind of places that used to vote, that used to be democratic strongholds, but they're now deep red when you're um, So um, listening to what you were just kind of describing there, explain to me and to our listeners how that's not maybe exactly what the Republican Party does in these areas, right? You you talked about Main Street values. You talked about an experienced workforce with upward mobility. I mean, to me, I'm hearing all of these things and I'm like, I agree, I agree, I agree. And I'm not necessarily, wouldn't probably be the, the key audience for a progressive policy uh, institute here. So explain to me maybe that difference of how you differentiate still being part of the Democrat Party or, you know, a moderate Democrat in that yeah. Well, look, I, you know, uh, let me just say that uh, PPI, Progressive Policy Institute, which I run, you know, we've, we've always been willing to, you know, cross the aisle and get into a constructive dialogue with Republicans of uh, what I'll say the pre-Trump era, because they were reasonable people you could deal with. Them. No longer the case, uh, you know, and just watch the antics of the Freedom Caucus in the House where their cultural gender is, frankly, just over the top. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. And so there's no way in the world that we're 
proposing that, but we're simply saying, look, uh, on immigration, for example, you know, we, we can't have uncontrolled immigration. We got to have controls. We got to, our laws have to be enforced. We want to see more legal immigration, less illegal immigration. Uh, we're not for open borders, but we're also not for the kind of, you know, restrictionist policies that the hardcore of the right are now pushing. So I don't think there's any trouble just uh, distinguishing what we are talking about from uh, from Republicans in general, certainly not from the from Trump Republicans. On the economy, you know, I mean, uh, we're free traders. Trump is, uh, he loves his tariffs. Uh, and so, uh, and also, you know, the kind of populists, certain populists, you know, bashers of the ground secretary. They're one of the uh, leading uh, advocates for breaking up these big tech companies, which they claim are, you know, are, uh, are biased against conservatives. And so I don't think it's true, but that's what they say. And so, I, you know, look, I, when I talk about radical pragmatism, I really, you know, it's a, I really think that pragmatism uh, is the radical option in a country that is, is far tilted to the right for leftism as America. And I know that there's some good folks on the Republican side here and elsewhere around the country that are trying to rebuild a kind of center right that's reasonable. You know, in a way that doesn't split or doesn't divide, it's the uh, populist right person. You know, um, I, I completely agree. I think that's exactly what Michael and I have been striving to do here with this podcast is to Absolutely. give a platform or, or some more voice to kind of, I, you know, we, we struggle with how to define it, right? It's not the middle in the grand scheme of the middle, but it's just not, you know, like you mentioned, the the pre-Trump Republicans. That's where neither of us are, are Trump supporters. We still tend to find ourselves in the Republican Party in some, you know, facet of that spectrum, but but it is tough. It's very tough. And look, I mean, uh, I know a lot of homeless Republicans here. Yeah, That's my term. That's what he calls himself every day. I myself all the time a homeless Republican. I tell them, come on over, but uh, most of them <laughs> aren't quite ready for that. Yeah. Well, um, because I, I don't like an to miss an opportunity, Michael did endorse our, our Democrat a governor for his second term. So, you know, he's closer to probably coming on over than I am. But, uh, <laughs> you know, some of the things you mentioned are, you know, what we've, we've seen from you, um, two recent op-eds um, that you wrote for The Hill. Um, I want to kind of break down that a little bit. Uh, the first one is, is titled, Why Working Families Aren't Sold on Bidenomics. And I think uh, a lot of great points. You mentioned the Trump tariffs. You mentioned the different, um, some of the things of, of reframing the economic policy and structure, um, but not necessarily leaning fully into what President Biden and, and his folks are are selling. So explain a little bit about your stance on that and, and where you think work needs to be done. Sure. Well, you know, I wrote that column because the White House was uh, touting, you know, Bidenomics as a, as a, as a, as a new economic theory, uh, which maybe so, but maybe it's just the wide economic policies of Best over the last couple of years, but in any event, uh, whether it's uh, it rises to the level of a full-blown economic theory or not, uh, the problem is. And, and look, I want to say that Joe Biden's done a lot of great things. The infrastructure bill was a great achievement. I think that the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which is basically mostly a clean energy investment act, I think that's a pretty big achievement. And I think the chips bill is is a good is a good thing. Uh, although, you know. Uh, 
we'll we'll see whether the foray into industrial policy works or not. But I'm willing to you know give it a shot to see if it does. So there's a very good things there. But the problem is what the what the White House wants to say. Hey, you know, uh, all these things we've done are making your life better. But uh, a lot of voters aren't feeling that. And thirty only thirty percent of the voters at uh, polls say that you know they that the economy's good. And you know it's. I don't think it's as bad as they think it is, but they have real reasons for not, you know, for not feeling better about their economic prospects. And the biggest reason is inflation. Uh, for all the, all the, you know, it's gone down, but it's still about core inflation. It's almost five percent, and that means if you get even a nice raise, you know, three, four percent, let's say you got a good raise, uh, inflation just eat it up. So a lot of families are feeling the pitch of inflation. They're feeling that their disposable income is being galled by high prices for everything. Housing's out of control. Food's pretty high. You know, energy goes up and down. Uh, and uh, so they're feeling a lot of stress in the here and now. And so when people come and say, look, we've, we've got all this infrastructure money coming down the pike and we got all this clean energy transition, all the green jobs we're going to create for you, you know, uh, that hadn't materialized yet. <laughs> so there's a... Yeah, you know, there's a kind of a sense that, well, are you really understanding the pressures that my family's under day in and day out? But that was the point of that article. I think, you know, and I think Democrats do understand the inflation problem, but we got to also make it clear to folks that we're we're on the case, we're fighting it. We got a policy that is helping the Fed, which has the main responsibility, do its job, a good, a tight fiscal policy, doing all the things like lifting these tariffs and raise the price. Of your agricultural goods and raise the price of a lot of goods. And so uh, raise the price of imports and, and uh, thereby contribute to inflation. So the things we could be doing that we're not doing, uh, would, I think, make a, a stronger argument to people that we're trying to get on top of the inflation that's uh, that's really uh, vexing American families. And then you'll have an easier sell for these other programs, the benefits of which haven't quite been felt yet, but I do think will be felt as we go along. And frankly, as we head into the next year's election campaign, I'm hoping that people will see those new plants uh, go up, those electric cars uh, being sold. They'll see some of the changes that are in the works and and, and they'll feel better about the economy, but we're not, just, just not there yet. Um, before we move on to your next op-ed, I did want to highlight one one part of this op-ed um, that really stood out to me. Michael and I are both come from a communications background and different facets of Republican politics, campaigning, government, all of that sort. Um, and we, we've strongly talked about the need to talk to suburban voters and, and namely suburban women voters. Um, you have a line in here that says the people Biden needs to persuade aren't progressive activists, but the swing voters who will decide the next election, suburban independents and moderates repelled by GOP extremism. Um, and it goes on. Um, can you sp speak a little bit to maybe what your institute or, or your general views on uh, what you, uh, what kind of policies you guys are working or efforts you're taking to, to speak to, to the suburban voters that we know are so, I mean, the decision makers here? Right. Well, look, um, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, what's really happened is a lot of independent moderate voters uh, they broke for Demo they broke for Biden in 2020, particularly independents. Well, both independents and moderates, and they broke. They broke for the Democrats in those uh, contested swing state Senate uh, races in 2022, which helped keep the uh, Senate in Democratic hands. Uh, and so, I think Republicans have 
problem with those voters. You know, they, uh, they, we, from the last two elections, uh, they just have, you know, and I and I do think that they think they look at Trump and see chaos and division and strife and, frankly, a crazy theory of a stolen election. And so, they they, they find it hard to be formed, particularly those that you know, frankly, that, that are college educated. Trump's strength, of course, it continues to be the non-college, you know, white work-class voters. But he's lost a lot of ground with college-educated voters, including college-educated suburban Republicans. So that's a, you know, that's a, I think they're going to be a really big factor in the next presidential election um, if Democrats can. And I think they, one of the good news for, for Joe Biden is that he's seen as more moderate than the Democratic Party as a whole. I, I've talked about this poll just a while ago that's in which the voters say both parties have moved too far toward their uh, respective extremes, but they but they they see Biden as more moderate than the Democratic Party, uh, and that's a huge advantage that he has in the in the matchup with Donald Trump. If that's what we have to endure again next year, God, I hope not. But in any case, um, so what are those voters? Well, first of all. You know, they they want normal politics. They don't want crazy. You know, you're the enemy. You must be destroyed. They don't want the kind of the the incitements to violence they hear from radical from extremists. You know, both sides. Uh, they want a normal politics that can solve their pro- help them solve problems, not a a war. And so that's that's really important. And so a kind of temperamental moderation. I don't mean a political one where you're trying to split the difference on every issue, but where you where you don't view the, your opponents as, as enemies, right? But as people, you know, that the Constitution, our system says you got to work with. You're not going to get anything done in government if you say, I'm never going to sit down with the other party and try to hammer out accommodations and compromises. Our system is built for those. We're not doing that. That's one of the reasons people are so frustrated with government. So making government work, being moderate in the way you talk to the other side and, and respectful, uh, not trying to uh, polarize around, you know, the hottest and most uh, incendiary issues of, of race and things like that. Uh, those are those are big keys. And frankly, on our part to, you know, make it clear that you're for growth and investment and innovation and not just for heavy handed regulation of the private sector and, and punishing capitalism. Fantastic. Well put. Fantastic. Uh, I do want to go. You had a second op-ed um, from earlier this this spring um, titled "Democrats Need a po- Post-Populist Economics." Um, explain a little bit, maybe about what that means, and and you know some of the details you you laid out in this op-ed. Yeah, thanks. Um, so, uh, what I've noticed, you know, back in I, you know, unfortunately, I've been around a little too long, maybe. But what I noticed is that. Uh, since 2010, since the big, you know, housing crisis slash financial meltdown, uh, a kind of state of clinical depression has hung over America when it comes to the economy. People are just really pessimistic. And that's not the normal state in America. The country I grew up in was kind of uh, uh, almost uh, comically, uh, you know, uh, hopeful and optimistic about the future. We always thought things were going to be getting better. Doesn't seem to be this the way people think since 2010, at least where the economy is concerned. And you know, and and I think you know that is a that's that's a kind of a populist hangover. You know, we we felt that the system failed. Both sides did. You had radical. You had the Tea Party on the right. You had the Occupy types on the left. 
So you had a lot of people that f- feel like the, the whole system broke down and all this talk about we're in post-capitalist America and all this stuff. Um, and, you know, we just stopped talking about how, you know, uh, we stopped trying to instill confidence in people that the future could be better for them. Uh, we played on their fears. And so I think you know, we're still we're still in that mode and we got to break out of it. We got it. And that's one reason I like the the fact that President Biden has talked a lot about this competition with China. I mean, the Chinese, you know, unlike the Russians, the Russians were an ideological rival to America, but they were kind of uh, they, yeah, they, they were uh, hopeless when it came to running a decent growing uh, economy. Chinese, not the case. <laughs> They're totalitarians with a great economy. And so we got to raise our game as a country. Well, yeah, they are investing big time in 5G and AI, you know, electric uh, cars and everything else. And they're going to surpass us if we don't deliberately and consciously focus on uh, out-competing them and out-innovating them. So to me, that, you know, we, we need to excite the country about something and I would I would say that this competition with China not not to not to stir up an enemy's kind of context but to say you know look this, this is uh, you know Americans love competition right you know you, mm-hmm. you you don't you don't want to go to the NBA final and watch some bunch of you know saps come out there and get killed by 40 points right you want a game you want a match yep and yeah that's what we got whether we want it or not with China and so that this we ought to be talking about how we're going to win talking about the policies going to help us win and how we're going to make sure this time that working class people, not college workers, people without college degrees, have a shot at getting the new jobs. And see, this is where I, I part company with some folks on the Democratic side and really with Trump. There's a lot of nostalgia for the factory economy, but that old economy is not coming back. And, you know, right now, if you look at where all the jobs are being created, it's e-commerce. It's digital. It's the digital sector, you know, uh, fulfillment, and uh, you know, uh, you know, all kinds of tech-oriented jobs, cybersecurity specialists, and so. And these are good jobs. Not all of them require uh, college degrees, and so we got to steer people with, into the new growth sectors of the economy with the skills they need to get good middle-class incomes and solid job prospects. So that's what we're focused on, PPI. We're doing a lot of work on apprenticeship, a lot of work on a much more dynamic way of making sure that uh, uh, that non-college people get uh, affordable and quick access to skills they need to be upwardly mobile. And frankly, we've been critical of the big emphasis on, you know, sort of student loan forgiveness, you know, college-going students, nothing wrong with college-going folk, but... There's just been such a disparity of, of investment. You know, the, the government spends hundreds of billions of dollars on the folks that go to college, and it, it spends a pittance on the folks that aren't going to college. We think that's a an inequity that we ought to be, redre- you know, addressing as Democrats, particularly. So um, that's what I think. You know, we've got to restore a sense of of. Uh, of of optimism about the future, a sense of possibility. Uh, uh, we got to get pic- people a picture of how America wins in this in this momental momentous you know competition with China, and rather than just tell them how bad they got it, you know that they that they're victims of you know global capitalism and the game is rigged against them and all that kind of stuff. We've done that for more than a decade. Now it's time to give people some hope. <laughs> 
I want to dial down a bit, a little bit about a, a subject you kind of touched on in your last answer about, about tech companies. Um, you know, there's some beyond congressional action. Uh, what are some of your thoughts on the on the near, what I would venture to say, near kind of constant litigation against tech company that's going on right now and, and the impact they could have on our economy uh, and, and development and growth in a, in a number of sectors? Yeah, well, well you know, we've, PPI, one of our trademark, our signatures, if you will, down the years, has been, uh, we've been really attentive to innovation. You know, the, 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 we were, we were, we watched as the uh, internet economy got born, uh, you know, in Silicon Valley back there in the 90s. And we watched as Bill Clinton very intelligently took a light-handed approach to regulating these new sectors. So they, they grow and flourish and not jumping ahead, ahead of things, trying to regulate before you needed to, before a real problem started to materialize. Um, and, uh, but now we've had this kind of tech back, you know, tech lash, they call it, you know, it's backlash against the tech companies because they are, uh, are big and huge. They're powerful. And there's no question about that. They've gotten very big, but most Americans like what they're, you know, what they've been providing us. You are, we're talking here on a virtual conversation, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, and, and during the, and during the, uh, during the pandemic, everybody shopped online and, you know, and everybody's got a smartphone, uh, and so people like what they've been getting uh, from uh, from this sector. Uh, by and large, it's popular. The, the products, services are popular, and they're also cheap. And yet, there is a contingent in Congress that's bipartisan. You've got right wing populists and left wing populists who want to break these companies up. Now, I'm not going to say they're perfect. There probably there are abuses out there, uh, and. They, you know, where where they happen, but we want to see public action. We want to see intervention. We want to, see if regulations necessary, fine. But the idea that our most successful and innovative and dynamic companies, which we're going to need to beat China in this tech competition, the idea that they should be broken up right now just doesn't make any sense to us. Sure, so we're saying make a case. You know, show us where where the harm is, and you know, then uh, then we can talk. But. The funny thing about the tech sector, and our economist Michael Mandel has uh, has, uh, has has documented this in several reports. Prices are low. In fact, they range from free to low. You know, what do you pay for? You know, search online. You don't pay anything. So, this is not a high cost sector. And on the contrary, and it's 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 actually subtracting from inflationary pressures in the U.S. economy right now. Now, you know, as I mentioned, you know, so on, you've, on the left, you've got this idea that they're just too powerful and they've got too much money and they buy political influence and they, you know, they call the shots. I think that's not true, but they are powerful. There's no question about it, but I don't think they're, they've got that much uh, ability. But you've got to point to real harms before you uh, go out there and break up our most successful companies. Sorry. On the right, it's just this crazy idea that, you know, they, that they, they're just trying to you know, they're just trying to uh, muzzle conservatives that you hear. I don't think that's really the case. The people who are trying to muzzle are, are nuts who are calling for violence and anti-Semitism and racism and, uh, and and terrorist groups that are trying to organize online and all sorts of dark forces that uh, ought to be ought to be uh, kept under wraps, if you ask me. Um, you know, one of the the you know, Becky made a, a really good point about your organization's perspective and your perspective on kind of the political landscape. We're coming into um, surprising how quickly we are already focused on the presidential race and coming into 2024. Give from your perspective, 
the dynamics of the 2024 election cycle. And also, if you could maybe piggyback a little bit on that and talk about what you think a winning message looks like uh, for for working families here uh, in America. Thanks, Michael. That's a great question. I'm trying to write on that today. So <laughs> uh, uh, try this out on you. But I I think it's a fascinating, fascinating uh, campaign that's uh, taken shape here. But it's too much about what happened last time, right? 2020. Yeah. So uh, 2020, the aftermath of the 2020 election seems to be dominating this new election cycle in two ways. First, Donald Trump's running again, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Against, uh, you know, contrary to a lot of predictions, prominent Republicans who said, okay, he's finished after this January 6th uh, stuff. Uh but he apparently isn't finished and is uh, the clear front runner for the Republican nomination again. But the other side, the other reason that uh, the old elections dominate the new one is, is that the his reckoning with the legal system is catching up with him. So now, you know, you've got all these investigations, uh, indictments uh, uh, cascading down on him. And I'm pretty sure that uh, uh, the Jack Smith, the you know, Department of Justice special prosecutor is going to bring charges very soon against uh, President Trump and some of his uh, enablers over the events of January 6th and the broader campaign to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power and uh, file phony slates of electors and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's going to happen. And so that's an unprecedented thing. We'll be talking about in the 24 race about, you know, uh, about the fr- a Republican frontrunner who could very well be char- charged and convicted of crimes in this election cycle. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, no, no, you know, it's, uh, actually, we have had presidential candidates who uh, campaigned from jail before. Uh, Eugene Debs back in 1912 did that. But uh, my, my, you know, we'll, we'll see if that happens this time. But I'm, I just cannot believe that that's going to help him with the general electorate. It might help him with his hardcore base that thinks he can do no wrong. But I just got to feel that there's Republican women and suburbanites and the independents and many moderates out there on the landscape who aren't already committed. Uh, and even some working class folks who, you know, uh, some of whom have kind of gone back, some of them who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump, you know, the, and Bill Biden made some inroads with those voters. I just can't believe that Trump will be helped by this uh, uh, you know, by a whole bunch of criminal charges, possibly even criminal convictions in the midst of, of, a, of a presidential election campaign. And and that goes to a topic that Becky and I've discussed a lot is that Trump's arrival or Trump's coming back into the presidential race, uh, and, and as you correctly noted, is likely the front runner. It takes away from uh, a substantive, I think, policy election, and it becomes more of a of a much more of a partisan personal dynamic. And I think that's frustrating to both Becky and I as, as, as she's certainly more Republican uh, would identify more as a Republican. Than I do as, as I said earlier, I'm kind of a homeless Republican, uh, but, and that, and I think that's, what's going to be unfortunate about the, a, a Trump Biden race is that I think it's going to be much, it's going to be a, a very nasty race. And because of the pending legal issues that Trump is facing, I think that takes away from a substantive policy. And I, I wanted to follow up with you on that. Um, for working families and and a whole variety of issues this cycle, what does a message do you think fit in and, and help, uh, you know, what, what, because I don't think 
the vast majority of Americans who are going to be voting are going to be interested. You know, Trump's legal issues, I don't think is going to be front and center on on their decision to vote this cycle. Uh, but economic issues and, and a message for working families. Where do you think that that message lands this election cycle? Uh, it's a good question. I, I It's hard for me to know because, you know, if Trump is the front runner, he really doesn't uh, talk too much about that. His thing is he's going to it's. He's going to rearrange federal government. He's going to agglomerate power in the White House. He's going to go back to Richard Nixon's old imperial presidency and uh, take powers away from Congress and 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 the and the uh, regulatory agencies. And uh, he's also made explicit threats to use the Department of Justice and FBI to go after his political enemies. So you know, um, uh, yeah. How do you get a a real debate about the economic questions that are on people's minds and other questions in that in a context in which that kind of revenge motive is so strong on his side. Now, maybe he won't get the nomination, but um, we'll see. I, you know, look, I mean, uh, he ran on an economic message that was as dark as anybody's, right? Mm -hmm. Tombstones, right. Tombstones littering the American landscape, those shuttered factories and you know how the elites sold us out, and all the trade agreements uh, ruined our industrial economy. And you know none of it was really true. And these big, uh, these these tariffs that didn't do us any good made him feel better, maybe. So I don't know what the Republican economic message is. I know what Biden's is. Biden is going to say that we're finally begin. We finally got a builder's liberalism again. We're finally investing in America again. Uh, we're going to. Uh, rebuild the uh, modern infrastructure under our economy, which is a good thing. It's, you know, Trump couldn't get it done in four years. His predecessors didn't either, but we finally got a big investment in modernizing our basic economic infrastructure. Uh, and this, you know, we're going to speed up this clean energy transition and we're going to try to create, make sure we don't get left behind in the competition for, uh, you know, electric cars and, uh, Chinese are already uh, ahead of us on that. We got to catch up. So I think there is, you know, this idea of uh, playing catch up a little bit. You know, uh, economic catch up is is going to be something you're going to hear from Democrats, and they're saying that they're willing to, you know, to make the public investments and they're willing to use government in a more assertive way to uh, to make sure that we are. Uh, developing the kind of capacities we need to be competitive for us this century vis-a-vis -vis China. So I do think that's going to be a centerpiece of it. Um, it but honestly, I don't know what the Republican message is going to be because it depends, you know, because somebody else, you know, it'll have to be somebody from Trump that delivers a, a new one, and I don't know if you'll get that. I don't know well, that Republicans know what Republicans' message is going to be, to be perfectly honest. That's interesting. Well, Will, we want to thank you so much for joining us today and uh, hope that there's an opportunity. I think Becky and I both identified a lot with what you said. I think our listeners will too. And I hope that as we get, you know, there's opportunities for you to come back, particularly next election cycle and, and we get close to the election, offer more insight and analysis on where you think the race is shaping up, particularly to your views and your organization views. But I just really thank you for being here today. We want to thank you for listening to this bonus episode of The Breakdown with Brad Corp and Becky. Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or on the platform where you listen. You can also leave a review on our website at bbbreakpod.com. 
Again, the website is bbbreakpod.com. You can find us on Twitter at bbbreakpod. The Breakdown with Brad Corp and Becky will return next week. Have a great one.